Thank you so much, uh, Matt and Sarah, for the invitation to uh, kick off your weekend here. It was uh, a few weeks ago when they approached me about coming uh, to share for this opening session. I've been excited about it ever since. It's a real privilege to be here. Lane, thanks for a great job uh, leading us tonight in music and worship. Uh, you, I think most of you have an outline there, and so you kind of know where I'm going. But let me just preface it so that uh, you're aware of where I'm going and where I'm not going, all right? You can see that the title... Yes? I don't, I don't know if has oh, they don't? Maybe don't? Oh, none do? Some do? Oh. Okay. Good. That's good. Great. Now you know where I'm going, right? Now, now you have an outline, now you have a title. Okay, so um, let me just preface this. You can see the title, The Sufficiency of Scripture in Evangelism, but let me explain what I am saying and what I am not saying so that there's no confusion, all right? Uh, what I'm not saying tonight, so please hear this, because I'm going to make some pretty strong statements and it, it would be easy to assume I'm saying something I'm not saying. I'm not saying it is wrong to, for example, share your testimony in evangelism. The Apostle Paul did that. In fact, he did it three times in the book of Acts. Uh, he did it before King Agrippa. He did it before Felix, before Festus. Your testimony can be a powerful tool in evangelism. So I'm not saying that's wrong. Uh, we also know that the Apostle Paul, when he was in Athens, uh, used, he quoted from some of the Athenian poets. So he used material in culture to try to bridge a gap and sort of relate to people. So I'm not implying that's wrong, that, that you know, the only thing that you can do in evangelism is quote Bible verses. Okay, that's not, not the point. Uh, nor am I saying that it's wrong to, for example, when Paul goes to present the gospel to the Romans in the book of Romans, in chapter 1, he talks about natural revelation. The creation of God is a witness. In chapter 2, he talks about the conscience that every man and every woman has, and he, he appeals to the conscience. So, I don't want to give the impression by what I'm going to say here tonight that the only thing you can use in evangelism is Scripture. However, what I do want to emphasize, or what I do want to counter is the tendency today, and not only merely the tendency, but the teaching today in many Christian circles that you shouldn't use Scripture in evangelism because, after all, this is the way it's presented Unbelievers can't understand the Bible, and it's an archaic book, and so you, you, you know, the only way you're going to be effective, and this is really what I'm battling, okay, the teaching, the actual philosophy of ministry that says the only way you're going to be effective in evangelism is if you get a rock star to do it, or a movie star to do it, or a sports star to do it. In other words, you can't just present scripture to people, the only way you're going to win them is to wow them. And so you have to, you know, the only effective evangelistic method is to have an event and some, you know, star of some kind come in and share the gospel or share his testimony, and that's how you're going to win people. And the message that that sends to us as average Christians is, well, then I can't be involved in evangelism. Because, you know, unless I was on LSD for 35 years, you know, you've heard all these testimonies, and, and I, you know, all of this stuff, then I don't really, I can't share the gospel uh, you know, I never played in the NFL, or I never, you know, I, I, I never made a, a record. You know, I'm not a, a 
a music star, you know, and so I can't, you know, I, I can't be effective in evangelism. And so the message that is very prominent in Christianity today is that scripture is not sufficient for evangelism. You need something else or someone else to do the job, okay? So that's what I'm battling. Don't mistake what I'm saying uh, and, and go overboard or out of bounds biblically to, to, to hear me say, if you try to use your testimony, quote from things in culture that maybe can help build a bridge or use natural revelation, creation, conscience, that somehow you're doing something wrong, all right? But I do want to counter this idea that Scripture should be left out of evangelism because unbelievers can't understand it anyway, etc. So, everyone know where we're going? So if I accidentally make an overstatement that sounds like I'm, you know, throwing everything else out, you know uh, what I'm really getting at, okay? So, fair, everyone knows where I'm going, what I'm saying, what I'm not going to say, all right? So that's introduction, let's jump in. Now, there's a very important lesson that we should learn from history and never lose sight of, and it is this. Whatever God values highly, Satan will seek to attack. We see this from the very beginning of time. Go back to the very opening of history, the very opening of Scripture. God created this world, man and woman. He said it was good, so what did Satan do? He entered nature in the form of a serpent, And he tempted man to cause the fall of the human race. As a result, God had to curse, and he had to, because of his holiness, he had to curse man, woman, and nature. Whatever God values highly, Satan will inevitably seek to destroy it in one way or another. This is further illustrated as you just keep on going through the book of Genesis. In in chapter 4, Cain murdered his brother. In chapter 4, Lamech broke God's divine pattern for marriage by taking two wives instead of one. And by the time you get to chapter 6, only chapter 6 in Genesis, Satan has messed things up so badly that God has to wipe out the entire world in a flood or with a flood. You see, Satan knew or knows how much God values his creation and his creatures. And that is exactly why Satan went after those things. After the flood, Satan continued to attack the things that God values highly. For example, one of the things we know from Scripture that God values very highly, may be surprised for you to hear this, one of the things God values very highly is sexuality. He's the author of it. He's the creator of it. It was his idea. He values it very highly, which is why Satan does as much as he can to mess it up. And you see this in Scripture. In Genesis 9.22, there are evil sexual thoughts and words. In Genesis 16, there is adultery. In Genesis 19, there is homosexuality. In Genesis 34, there is fornication and rape. In Genesis 38, there is incest and prostitution. In Genesis 39, there is seduction. All of these attacks on sexuality before you even get out of the book of Genesis. So in the book of Genesis alone, we see that Satan continually tries to attack or mess up whatever God values highly. And that can be seen throughout the rest of the Old Testament. Now think with me about the New Testament, because the principle is illustrated there as well. You come to the very first book of the New Testament, the book of Matthew. And it opens with the birth of Jesus, God's beloved son. Chapter 1 of Matthew. So in chapter 2, Satan moves Herod to kill all the babies in Bethlehem and all the surrounding district in an attempt to kill the Christ child. Again, it illustrates whatever God esteems highly, whatever he cherishes, whatever is important to God, Satan wants to destroy or he wants to attack. 
This is seen clearly in the life of God's people, whether you're, you're looking at God's Old Testament people, Israel, or God's New Testament people, the church. As you study the Old Testament, you see clearly how Satan attacked Israel to, to try to destroy them. Sometimes the attacks were internal in the nation, such as um, uh, leading people to sin. Sometimes they were external, such as attacks from other nations to destroy them. But the purpose was the same, and that was to destroy the people of God. You see the same thing in the New Testament in relation to the church. In the book of Acts, for example, you see internal attacks from Satan as he seeks to cause division in the body, sin in the body, and then there were external attacks as the church was persecuted and killed. And understand this. The reason why Satan put so much effort in trying to destroy, and if not destroy, damage the people of God is because Satan knows how highly God loves his people. This is an age-old tactic. Think about it. If you want to hurt someone, then hurt someone that individual dearly loves. Now, Satan knows he can't really hurt God directly. He can't do anything to God. So what does he do? He tries to hurt God by hurting what God loves so deeply, his people. And that is exactly what Satan is doing today in relation to Scripture. Psalm 138 verse 2 says, God magnifies his word above his name. That's an incredible statement. And since God values his word so highly, you can bet that Satan is doing everything he can to undermine Scripture. And let me mention some of the ways he does this, because he does this in a number of ways. The front attack, the head-on, the direct attack, is from liberals and others who flatly deny the truthfulness and authority of Scripture. Now, by the way, when I say liberals, liberal scholars, I'm not just talking about outside of Christianity. Amazingly, they're inside of Christianity. They say the Bible has historical errors or scientific errors or psychological errors. I remember years ago, uh, I was uh, asked to be on a panel in Bozeman, a panel of of leaders in the community, because uh, some group was bringing in this, this movie called The Last Temptation of Christ, bringing it into Bozeman. It's a blasphemous presentation of Christ. Is pretty controversial, so I was on this community panel as we discussed this. Now, you would assume that everyone on this panel who was a pastor would be on one side of the issue, you know, against the thing, and maybe some others would be on the other side. But we had a Methodist pastor on the panel with me who said this. Here's what he said, and I wrote it down. I've kept it all these years. He said, this movie presents what Jesus was really like. Now, it's a blasphemous presentation of Jesus. He said, this movie presents what Jesus was really like, but the gospel writers cleaned him up after he was gone. That's what he said. That's an attack on the inerrancy of Scripture. That's an attack on the authority of Scripture. That says, well, you know, you really can't, it's not, you can't trust what the Bible says. You've got to to go through here and demythologize it and, you know, take out the parts that are just man's opinion. And and that's an attack on the inerrancy of Scripture. So that's the front attack, the head-on attack. But I think there's also a rear attack today. Now, I'm not sure it's conscious or intentional, but the rear attack, I think, uh, the rear attack on Scripture today, I think, is coming from within, again, within the family of God, coming from the charismatic movement, which is so quick to add visions, dreams, and other revelations, so that the result is, now again, they don't realize this, the Bible's no longer unique. You want to hear from God? Well, you can hear from God by reading the Bible or just get a vision or just have God speak to you or have some special revelation. That is an attack 
on the singular authority of the Bible. Scripture isn't the singular authority because God's, you know, you can just get God to speak to you anyway. So there's a front attack, there's a rear attack, but there's what I call the internal attack on Scripture. That's what I want to address tonight. The, the attack from the inside is much more subtle, and that is the attack that's happening today within Christianity, and, I, and not just liberal Christianity. I'm talking about within our camp, within conservative Christianity, this is the attack on the sufficiency of Scripture. Now, let me explain to you how this is happening, because again, I don't believe it's intentional. It's, it's subtle, but it's clear that we are being told uh, within our own family, uh, within the family of God, that we need Scripture plus something else to be what God desires us to be. For example, Christian leaders are told, and I know this because of my position, uh, we are being told that if you really want to be effective in spiritual leadership, you need the Bible plus, now fill in the blank, some management course to really be effective. I get, I get so much mail at the office there from groups that are saying, come to our seminar, come to, we'll, you know, we've learned how General Electric has done it, how IBM has done it, how Apple has done it. We'll give you the keys, you know, the success. If you really want to be effective, I don't even open that mail. It's just really easy. You just discard it because you don't, you, you don't need, you don't need the, I'm not saying that they haven't learned some good things about corporate management, etc. but the, the subtle message is you can't go to the word of God to find out how to be an effective leader if, it's, if you don't have the principles from Apple or IBM or whoever. And the church is being told, and I alluded to this earlier, the church is being told that you need the Bible plus star power, the Bible plus entertainment, the Bible plus whatever, psychology, the Bible plus this, if you're really going to be an effective church. You've got to have all this other... You can't just use Scripture. We are told that to accomplish the work of the kingdom of God, we need the Bible plus politics. I heard a guy say one time, there will never be another revival in America until we have a strong Christian president. Well, now listen, I'm all for if in the sovereignty of God we have a strong Christian president. I don't know any Christian would be against that. But listen, whether we have a Christian president or a Christian Congress has nothing to do with whether or not there's going to be revival in America. So all of these extras, though they may not be wrong in and of themselves, are seen today basically as helps to make up for the inadequacies of Scripture. Now, they, they may never be called inadequacies. Most Christians wouldn't use that term. Uh, it's not an overt, outright denial of the sufficiency of Scripture. But let me tell you, the message is loud and clear. Whereas most Christians in conservative Christianity verbally affirm the sufficiency and power of Scripture by their actions. They say the scripture really isn't sufficient or powerful in practical ways. Let me give you an illustration. I, I see this so often just because of my position. You see this in the area of marriage and the family. For instance, I have, I've, I've lost track of the number of times I've had someone say this to me. Maybe not these exact words, but really close. They'll say, now, they, you know, their marriage is a mess. And they come in for counseling and they say, now, don't just tell me what the Bible says about marriage. Give me something practical. Now, what is that saying? It's saying the Bible's not practical. It's not sufficient. It's not powerful. So in theory, they would affirm it, but in practice, they deny it. And that's, that's my concern. 
Maud Fraser Jackson once wrote this. What if I say the Bible is God's holy word, complete, inspired, without a flaw, but let its pages stay unread from day to day and fail to learn therefrom God's holy law? What if I go not there to seek the truth of which I glibly speak for guidance in this earthly way? Does it matter what I say? The answer is no. It doesn't matter what we say. Most Christians verbally affirm the sufficiency of Scripture, the power of Scripture, but they don't read it. They don't study it. They don't memorize it. They don't turn to it for guidance, for help, for strength. And you know the old saying, actions speak louder than words. There are churches, there are churches in our land that would fight for inerrancy. If you tried to, if some group tried to tell them that the Bible is full of errors, they would fight for inerrancy. But when it comes to running the life of the church, they don't consult the Word of God. I was on staff at a church in Florida for uh, a time, and this was a church that would die for inerrancy. But when it came to how the church should function, Scripture was never consulted. In fact, I'll never forget this. The pastor one time, he got up and he said, I'm going to do a a series on on spiritual leadership. And I thought, well, this will be great. This will really help our church because... We need to have godly men as elders and shepherds, and that's what this church needs. I was so excited. And so the first week he got up and he did a message. I don't remember. It was somewhere in the Old Testament about one of the prophets. I thought, okay, that's, that's maybe a good way to start. You give an example of a spiritual leader. And then the next week he did something. I thought, you know, eventually he's going to get to like 1 Timothy, which is about spiritual leadership in the church, or 2 Timothy, or Titus. You know, I mean, those are church epistles. You think you would consult it in the church? If you're talking about leadership, so anyway, this series goes six weeks, seven weeks, eight, I don't remember how long it was. And then one Sunday after he finished his message, he said, and thus, never touch 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, or Acts. And he said, thus we conclude our series on church leadership. I thought, where's the disconnect here? We say we'll fight for inerrancy, but when it comes to what does God's word have to say about leadership, we don't even consult it. We don't even look for what it says. So this is, this is the issue. Now we're going to apply this specifically to evangelism, but I just want to give it on a broader perspective at first. And then as I said, there is, there is this, the, the, the charismatic movement, well-meaning people, but it's all this new revelation from God. God speaking to me through tongues. Everyone receives a word of knowledge. That is without, not intentionally, but that is an attack on the sufficiency of Scripture. Well, this isn't enough. We need to get a new word from God through some other way. Listen, if the Bible is sufficient, why does God need to give us more revelation? If it's sufficient, why does he have to give messages to the church through a word of knowledge, special revelation, visions, dreams, tongues? You see, those things, not intentional, but they're nothing less than an attack on the sufficiency of Scripture. So we're, we are all, as Christians, in one way or another, we're all guilty by our actions of undermining the sufficiency of Scripture. And listen, those who don't read it, study it, memorize it, and follow it are just as guilty as those who maybe would outright deny it. So I want to talk about that with some of the passages you have listed there on your outline. And let's begin in 2 Timothy chapter 3. If you're familiar with this passage, then it's not surprising that we turn here. 2 Timothy 3, most of you in this room probably know verse 16, that all scripture is inspired by God's profitable, etc. But I want us to back up 
just a couple verses because they really pertain to the topic of the weekend. And notice what it says. Paul says to Timothy in verse 14, but you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you've learned them. Now watch this verse, verse 15, that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, watch this, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. See what that says? The Scripture is sufficient to make us wise unto salvation, to lead us unto salvation. And that's not all. You know verse 16 that Scripture is Profitable, doctrine, approved, correction, instruction, righteous, that the man of God may be complete. Verse 17 says, thoroughly equipped for every good work. The word of God is comprehensively able to make us what God wants us to be. Because it is God-breathed. I already mentioned Psalm 138, verse 2. God magnifies his word above his name. In other words, God's character stands behind the character of his word. God places the character of his word on the same level as the character of his name. Now, if you know much theology at all, you know how important God's name is to him. His name is so, so important to him. So if God is sufficient, his word is sufficient. Look with me at 2 Corinthians chapter 3. We're just going to, uh, rather than take a text and work through it, which is what I usually do, I just want to expose you broader to a number of passages that bring this out. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 5, Paul says, Not that we are sufficient of ourselves, to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God. Back in chapter 2, verse 16, Paul asks the question, Who is sufficient for these things? Now, gang, listen, if you've been involved in ministry of any kind, especially if you've been involved in spiritual leadership of any kind, you totally get it. You know what Paul is saying in chapter 2, verse 16. Who is sufficient for these things? No, but none of us are. None of us are sufficient for these things in and of ourselves. Who is sufficient for these things? And here in chapter 3, verse 5, he gives the answer. We're not sufficient in and of ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God. God is sufficient. He's not inadequate in any way. In fact, look, turn over to chapter 9 to see what Paul says there. Chapter 9 of 2 Corinthians. And notice as we read verse 8, notice the superlatives that Paul gives. He says, you know what he says? I don't know what he says because I'm on the wrong verse. (laughs) I have no idea where I'm going. So we're going to skip that point, all right? Chapter 9, 2 Corinthians 9, 8. This is not the verse I had in mind. It's not the verse I was looking for. So, yes it is. I'm sorry. I was looking looking at verse 6. So, okay, good. I thought, "Ah, verse 8, verse 6, he was so sparingly. They're going to think I'm trying to get him to give me some money or something. So, so this is, no, verse 8. Here it is, verse 8. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you always having all sufficiency in all things may have an abundance for every good work. Seven times in this one verse, the sufficiency of God is set forth. Seven times. God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you always having all sufficiency in all things 
may have an abundance for every good work. Do you see any insufficiency in that verse? None. God is completely, totally, comprehensively sufficient. And as His children, our resources come through the Word of God, energized in our lives by the Spirit of God. If God is sufficient, His Word is sufficient. I want us to see this from the lips of Jesus Himself. Go back to John chapter 17. This is the night before Jesus was murdered, the night before His crucifixion. He knows he's about to be killed. So in John 17, he's praying for his men, the men he had invested in, the men he was going to turn the ministry over to. And he, he knew that even though he tried to tell them he was going to die, they just didn't get the message. And he, he, he knew how devastating this was going to be. So he prays for them. And notice what he says as he prays to the Father. By the way, just a little side note, this is, a, this is maybe one of the most fascinating passages in Scripture because you have deity communing with deity. I mean, this is incredibly insightful. Deity communing with deity. And notice what Jesus says in verse 17. John 17, 17. He's praying to the Father, and he says, Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. The word sanctify means to set apart for God, set apart for His holy purposes. And here in verse 17, Jesus indicates that the complete sanctification process is accomplished through the Word of God. So we need Scripture to be sanctified, and we don't need something else that others would tell us we need in addition to Scripture. The Word is sufficient. When we begin adding things to the Word of God, then without realizing we're no different than the cults. That's what they do. The cults say, well, you need the Bible plus the Book of Mormon, the Bible plus the Pearl of Great Price, the, Pearl, the Bible plus Science and Health with Keys to the Scripture, the, the Bible plus Watchtower Revelation, the, the Bible plus the teachings of Charles Taze Russell, the Bible plus the Edicts of the Pope and the Holy Church, and on and on it goes. But here in verse 17, John says, or Jesus says, the Word of God alone is sufficient to make the man or woman of God, all that God wants us to be. The, the Word can sanctify us. This was so, not only so important to Jesus, but so much on His mind. And I want you to show you a passage where it just sort of pops out, just comes out, almost, you know, almost without thinking. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Go back to Luke's Gospel, chapter 11. Luke chapter 11, and notice in verse 27, it says, and it happened as he spoke these things that a certain woman from the crowd, now you need to understand, you really need to picture this, that everywhere Jesus went, he was literally inundated with people. They pressed on him, they squeezed him. In fact, Mark tells us on one occasion Jesus told his disciples when they were up in Galilee, near the Sea of Galilee, to have a little boat ready by the shore so he wouldn't get crushed. Can you imagine that? He's told his disciples, you need to have a boat ready so if I need to slip away, I can get in the boat and get out in the lake. Because people would push so much to try to be around him. You remember the, the issue, the woman with the, the flow of blood, the issue of blood, she touched just his garment. He said, who touched me? And the disciples said, come on, Lord. Who touched me? Look at this. I mean, you got people... You know, squeezing on you, pushing, and you're wanting to know who touched you? 
So you need to picture that. So crowds everywhere, everywhere Jesus went. I mean, literally just pressed and pushed. And so Luke tells us it happened as he spoke these things that a certain woman from the crowd raised her voice. She would have to raise her voice loud because there's always a, a flurry of activity around Jesus. She raised her voice and said to him, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast which nursed you. Now, how do you respond to that? What are you going to say? It's like, what is that? I mean, you know, where is that coming from? What? But notice, notice Jesus' response. This is why I said it just sort of was so much a part of his thinking. But he said, more than that, more than that, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. What a monumental statement. And it's just sort of a reaction to this awkward situation. But how do you respond to that in the crowd? Well, Jesus knew exactly how to respond. More blessed than that are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Do you think Jesus valued the word of God? He saw it as sufficient. There's no doubt about it. One of the most repeated statements in the Gospels, it's not the exact same quote, but along these lines, Jesus repeatedly said, have you not heard? And he's referring to scripture. Have you not read? Do you not know what it says? I mean, come on, don't you know? It's pretty simple. It's basically what he's saying. Just read the Bible. It's what he was saying to the Jewish people of his day. And notice what Jesus went on to say in the following verses. Verse 29. And while the crowds were thickly gathered together, he began to say, this is an evil generation. It seeks a sign. And no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah the prophet. For as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so also the Son of Man will be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up in judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And indeed, a greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. Indeed, a greater than Jonah is here. You know what's fascinating to me about this passage? Keep it together with what Jesus just said. Jesus condemned that generation. Let me put it to you plainly. Because rather than seeking to hear the word of God, what he just said, blessed are those who hear it and keep it, they were seeking signs. Isn't that interesting in light of contemporary Christianity? I mean, how many Christians are there? I'm not just picking on it, just, but it's just right here. How many Christians are there that rather than seeking to hear the word of God and keep it, they want signs, miracles, and wonders? What a contrast right here in this text. They wanted to see power. There's a lot of talk about power today within Christianity, the power of positive thinking, the power of self-actualization, the power of verbal affirmation, the power, I mean, if you, if you go into the average, just even ours in Bozeman, the average Christian bookstore, you'll find books on all that. You don't have to look far to find books on all of that. But in Mark 12, 24, Jesus indicated that to know the scripture is to experience the power of God. The power of God is in knowing scripture. When Satan tempted Jesus, what did Jesus do about it? How did he handle it? Did he say, this is what a lot of Christians say today, I bind you, Satan, as if that accomplishes anything. He didn't say, I bind you. No. He didn't say, what do you do? I am the son of God. You can't tempt me. No. He quoted scripture. Three times he said, it is written. It is written. It is written. The power isn't in some mystical mind game. The power isn't in positive verbal affirmation. The power is in Scripture. Knowing it, believing it, living it, and using it. Using it. And that's where I want to end because 
that's sort of the culmination of this talk. We're talking about sufficiency or the power of Scripture in evangelism. So, with all this as background, just turn over a few pages to the right to Luke 16. And I want you to just remind yourself of this. Just I don't even know what word to use. Just incredibly amazing interaction that takes place in Luke 16. Verse 19 says, There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. By the way, side note, a lot of commentators will call this a parable. I don't think this is a parable. Uh, several reasons. One, almost every parable Jesus told in Luke's gospel is called a parable. This is never called a parable. Not only that, Jesus didn't use like or as. The kingdom of heaven is like or as. And Jesus never in any of his parables mentioned anyone's name. So for three reasons, I don't, but here's the other thing. If it is a parable, it doesn't change anything. The point is still the same, but I don't think it's a parable because he names this guy, this beggar named Lazarus. Parables are made up stories with the spiritual truth. So you don't give guys names. The parable, the, you know, the prodigal son, you don't hear him call them, well, one's Harry and one's Bob and one's, you know. This is this kid, it says a father, two sons, etc., but here, Jesus mentions a name. In verse 22, so it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you receive your good things and likewise Lazarus evil things but now he is comforted and you are tormented. Besides all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. Then he said, I beg you therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers that he may testify to them lest they also come to this place of torment. Another pause here. You've probably heard someone say, I've heard it many times through the years. Oh, I want to go to hell so I can party with my friends. I've heard that so many times. Listen, there's not going to be any partying, and anyone in hell would not want any friend there, as you see here. Here, this guy says, whatever it takes, send someone to my brothers. I don't want them to come here. So send someone. And then verse 29, this is where it's really fascinating. Abraham said to him, they have Moses and the prophets. What's that? Well, that's just a Jewish way of saying they have Scripture. Moses and the prophets. That's the way they would refer to Hebrew Scripture. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, sounds like a 21st century power and wonder signs kind of guy. No, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. See, they, they need something flashy. You know, like all the books that, you know, the people have gone to heaven and hell and come back and now one by one they're starting to be shown to be a farce, which anyone who knew the Bible should have known anyway. But that's, oh, that sells. And oh, people will believe if, if you give them a book that says, oh, you know, 10 minutes in heaven, 20 minutes in hell, whatever. That's what a really, that's really effective evangelism. Just send someone from the dead, then they'll repent. But he said to him, listen, if they don't hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded though one rise from the dead. Let me just put that in plain language. 
Listen, if they won't hear Scripture, then nothing's going to convince them. doesn't matter, rock star, movie star, sports star, if they won't hear Scripture, neither will they be persuaded they'll one rise from the dead. That's an incredible statement. If they won't listen to the Word of God, then they won't believe. Now compare that statement with what Peter Wagner said at the American Association of Bible Colleges Convention uh, a, few, a few years back. He said this, I quote, I wrote it down so I would have it exactly like he said it. The simple gospel is no longer adequate without signs and wonders. That's what he said. The simple gospel is no longer adequate without signs and wonders. Listen, gang, the simple gospel could not be any more adequate. It couldn't be any more powerful. Romans 1.16 says, The gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. And with that, we're right back to where we started. 2 Timothy 3.15, The scriptures are able to make you wise unto salvation. So, all of that to say this. You don't need to be hesitant to use scripture in evangelism. Again, you can use your testimony. You can use other things. That's Paul did. But you don't need to be hesitant to use Scripture. You don't need to back away. You don't say, well, but they, you know, they don't understand it. They, you know, they don't. But you know what Paul says in Romans 2, 14 and 15? That the law, get this, is written in their hearts. Even if they've never, even if you're talking to someone about the Lord who's never heard the Bible, there's something internally that will connect if you use Scripture with them. Because the law, some of the law of God is written in their heart. Appeal to the law in their hearts. Because God says it's there. It's there. So, one point. One point in all of this. Don't hesitate. Don't be ashamed. Don't be uh, reserved. Don't be convinced by someone who says there's a better way. Don't, don't move away from using Scripture in evangelism. Alright, let's pray. Father, thank you. It just seems so trite to say thank you for your word. What a priceless gift it is to have the very word of God. As Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.16, the very breath of God. We have scripture. And we think about Jesus' statement when he was sort of put on the spot. And how he said, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. We are blessed to have Scripture and to be able to read it, to be able to, by the power of the Holy Spirit, keep it or obey it. And we are blessed to be able to use it, to use it in conversations with people, to be able to use it in evangelism and to take people, in a sense, face-to-face with you when we put them in Scripture or when they are face-to-face with Scripture. So grant us the wisdom like we see Paul exercising and knowing in any given situation, the most effective way, when to use his testimony, when to use things from the culture to, to help uh, bridge the gap in understanding and, and using natural revelation and creation, the conscience. But even all of that, all of that, the foundation was clearly with Scripture for Paul. And there were times when he just used Scripture and none of those other things. So help us just to, as we work with people to have the kind of wisdom Jesus demonstrated in presenting the gospel to Nicodemus in one way, the woman at the well in another way, and yet never compromising the truth in either of those conversations, but always relaying it in a way that would connect 
with the person to whom he was talking. That is, doesn't come naturally to us. It isn't easy for us. But grant that we would grow in it and just be able to, by the, by the wisdom from your spirit, get better and better just as until the Lord Jesus comes, in whose name we pray. Amen.